When it comes to air quality, the bad news is that wildfires and air pollution have really degraded the quality of our air. But the good news is that we're all realizing that the quality of our air, and particularly the quality of our indoor air, is really darn important. I'm so excited to tell you about Puro Air because in 30 minutes, this device will remove allergens, dust, smoke, and gases from your room. It uses a stronger type of filter called a HEPA-14, and it filters pollutants at a microscopic level. I keep my Puro Air running upstairs where the bedrooms are all night. I love that it's quiet. Cleaner air just hits different, doesn't it? Check out everything Puro Air has to offer at getpuroair.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. One more time for the people in the back, getpuroair.com. Hi there, listeners. Welcome back and Happy New Year. You're listening to episode 332 of Sustainable Minimalists, a twice-weekly show about intentional and eco-minimalist living. We live in a world in which, by and large, we can get what we want when we want it. But there is a problem, and it is that resources are finite, whether we're talking about environmental resources or financial resources or everything in between. Resources are indeed finite. And so how do we teach that to our children when they are growing up in a world when we can get whatever we want? whenever we want it. Today, I bring you a conversation with Liz Frugalwoods. She is the brains behind the super popular blog, frugalwoods.com. Liz tackles life through the lens of frugality, through financial independence, through simple living. And so she's on the show today to offer up some tips on teaching kids about finite resources. We're talking about thrifting. We're talking about enacting chores. We're talking about so many things. Liz, so excited to have you on the show. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for coming on the show. Tell us how you source your children's clothes and how you saved thousands of dollars. Sure. So I get everything that I possibly can for them secondhand. So hand-me-downs from friends who have older kids, thrift stores, and most especially garage sales. I am a lover of the garage sale, and I've been able to get really pretty much everything I need for my daughters used. And they are seven and four, almost five. And I've been doing this since before they were born. I started you know, when I was pregnant with my first, have not stopped. And it has been such a fantastic thing for our family. Well, I definitely want to talk about your love of garage sales in a minute, because I have a lot of questions. Garage sales, in my mind, I just don't like them. But I think you're going to convince me. Before I ask that question, though, I have kind of a personal one, which is, did you grow up in a home in which the parents or the parental figures thrifted or embraced secondhand. And I ask that because I didn't grow up in that type of household. I grew up in a home in which everything was new. It was cheap new, like inexpensive and cheaply made new, but it was still new. And I think that for a lot of people where like secondhand hasn't been normalized through their own childhoods, uh, they can feel some sort of resistance. So my question there in that long 
diatribe is, did you grow up in a home in which secondhand items were normalized? Yes. Frugal is in my blood. I have to say, we have like a very strong maternal line of frugal. My maternal grandfather grew up during the Depression and saved absolutely everything, reused everything, knew how to fix, sew, patch together absolutely anything. And he passed that on to his daughters, my mom being one of them, and she passed it along to her children, me being one of her children. And so it was always something that we did in our family. And what I really like is the way that my mom always framed it as a treasure hunt and as something fun. From a financial perspective, we were very comfortably middle class. You know, we did not have to get our clothing from Goodwill, but we did because it was enjoyable. And she always made it a treasure hunt. And she loved to talk about, oh, we got this sweater from Goodwill for a dollar. Look, it has a tag that said says Gap. And then she'd take me to the Gap store at the mall and say, look, this sweater is $50 new. And so she put it into terms that I could understand as a child. And especially as like a teenager, I was like, ah, uh, yes, I can definitely get more Gap jeans if we go to the thrift store than new, because I know you're not going to spend $100 on a pair of jeans for me at the mall. So she really helped me to understand that it's not so much about the value, although that's part of it, but it's like, you can get the same thing for way less. And so she sort of made that gamification very, very appealing to me. And it continues to be so appealing. I love that. Reframing it as a treasure hunt, I believe you said. Reframing it as a game, a a, a literal game. Like, let's see what we can get for less. I love that. And I'm assuming your two daughters really enjoy the hunt, the treasure hunt, the game. They do. So they are at the age right now where I don't like willingly take them to garage sales with me because it's too stressful. You know, they were four and six over the summer, summer's garage sale season. And it's like too much for me to try to manage them at a yard sale, like trying to find deals. I don't really want their opinions because I know what I need to get. But the way that I've brought them into this is by letting them pick out their wardrobe from the used clothing boxes that I have. Um, And so this has brought them into the process. They understand that the things are secondhand. They think that's very cool. And then they are able to go through and select the stuff that they want to wear. As you're talking, I'm thinking about how beautiful it is that the frugality that your grandfather passed down to your mother, then passed down to you. It's a generational thing that's happening right before my eyes. And I think that's so beautiful. But talk to me about the garage sales. You mentioned really liking them. What is it about a garage sale that you find preferable over, let's say, Facebook Marketplace or some online secondhand retailer? I am the lover of the garage sale because you can make it one-stop shopping. I do not like driving around. I do not like going to stores. I got better things to do with my time. So during the summers, when we have garage sales up here, my friend and I do this together. We look at the listings for garage sales. And anytime we see something that has kids stuff, kids clothing, kids toys, we go. And if they happen to have girls who are just a little bit older than mine, I will buy almost everything they have. And this has happened to me many, many times. And this has happened to my friends who have boys. Like, same thing. It's just whatever 
type of kid you have, whatever they're interested in. If you find somebody else who has a similar kid who's a little older, I buy the shoes, I buy the boots, I buy the clothes, I buy the toys and the books because the tastes are similar and I can get a fantastic deal. So I, this past summer was at a great yard sale where the woman had three daughters who were all like stair steps older than mine. And I went over to the clothing table and I was like, I will probably just buy all of this because she had you know, the pants and dresses. And it was all like styles that I like, just kind of like plain, super nice. And then I also bought a ton of the toys they had because again, they were the right sort of age, maturity level, interest point for my kids. Um, so that that is what I mean by one-stop shopping. Because if I do Facebook marketplace or the thrift store, I might find one pair of pants for one of my kids. That is not gonna get me very far. <laughs> you know, versus I go to a garage sale, the folks have gone to the trouble of setting this all up. They don't want to put it back away. They want you to buy it. So I very, very, very often will say, okay, I will take all of these clothes and all of these toys. How does 20 bucks sound? And they're like, great. Yes. Take this stuff off my property. And I've even had people say, wait, I've got more in the house that I forgot to get out. I'm going to go get the next size up of coat. And I'm like, yes, I'll buy all your coats. It is, it's so much less expensive and again, you are doing them a favor. You're taking their stuff. And then the ultimate part of this too is to remember that you are then part of a cycle of giving and generosity and environmentalism because I'm keeping this stuff out of the landfill. I'm not taking on the carbon costs of new, of shipping, manufacturing, marketing, creating. And I'm showing my kids that in the same way that this stuff is easy come to us, it's easy go as well. So when you outgrow it, we pass it along to someone else so that they can use it. And that's like really the important piece for me is that my kids understand that there is a whole list of reasons why we get things used. It's not just the dollar amount that we're saving. Hmm. As you're talking, Liz, the frugal environmentalist within me is cheering I love everything you're saying. <laughs> However, the minimalist in me is thinking, oh my goodness, if you're buying a whole table of stuff for 20 bucks, that whole table of stuff then has to be integrated into your home. That's a lot of stuff. What do you say to listeners who say, I don't have the time or the energy to put all that work on the front end in? It's much easier for me when I see a gap in my child's wardrobe or in my child's toy room to just, you know, go to Amazon and buy something for super cheap. Do you have any words for them? So in some ways it's work on the front end, but in other ways it's not because like I said, it's an ongoing cycle, right? So you're continuously putting stuff into the 4T bin as you get it. So then when you hit that size, you just pull out the 4T bin. It's already labeled. So you do like, as you get a bag of hand-me-downs, you do need to take the five or 10 minutes at that time. You know, cause I used to just like throw the bag in the basement. That is a really bad idea. <laughs> cause then you're like, oh my God, what is this? But if you take the time to sort it, when you get it, then it's not really that much stuff like at any given moment, if that makes sense. And, you know, sure, there is some work, but there's also work involved with going on Amazon and researching it and buying it. Um, so it's a, it's a trade-off. You have to decide, like, do I want to spend more and potentially save time? Or can I incorporate this system into my life? You know, this isn't right for everybody. But if you're like curious, if you've thought about doing this, 
try it out and see how you can incorporate incorporate it into your routine. Hmm. Your answer there makes me think about the differences associated with being proactive versus being retroactive in anything in life, not just in clothing our kids, but with anything. You know, when we're proactive, there the one major benefit in my mind is that you don't have the stress associated with acting retroactively. So a great example here is, <laughs> this is a true example from my real life. My five-year-old, she has very specific clothing um, desires. And so she doesn't wear whatever I give her. She She has thoughts and ideas. They have to feel a certain way. They have to fit a certain way. And so she has like basically three pairs of pants she likes. And wouldn't you know, the other day I went into her room and all three pairs, because they're leggings, they all had holes in the knees. And she can't wear holes, (laughs) pants with holes everywhere. So I had to act from a retroactive space, right? I had to retroactively on the fly, find some pants for her. And when you're acting or when I'm acting in a retroactive way, that increases my stress, my cortisol levels, if we want to get scientific about it. And who needs who needs extra cortisol, right? So if I was proactive in finding pants that she would like and wear before all of her pants got holes in them, I would still be doing work, but I would save myself the stress and overwhelm associated with having to do it right then and there. And I would say, too, that when we're acting from a place retroactively, we don't always make the best decisions, or at least I don't, because we're down to the wire. Time is no longer on our side. And so I want to talk to you about what your kids think about all of this, Liz. We're going to get there after a quick word from this week's sponsor. Hello, Sustainable Minimalist listeners. Are you committed to living a greener and simpler life? Well, meet Home Threads, your ally in more sustainable and minimalist home decor. As the total destination for decor and furniture, Home Threads helps you define your minimalist lifestyle while respecting the planet. Discover their exclusive Haven collection. They use many sustainable materials without compromising on style. And here's the best part. Home Threads always has the best value. It was time. After nine years of living in our home, it was time to replace our outdoor furniture. And my husband and I, we went to Home Threads. We have a Home Threads patio umbrella and a new bench. And oh my goodness, we are so in love Create a home that reflects your commitment to the environment. Visit homethreads.com slash sustainable and get a code for 15% off your first order. Homethreads.com slash sustainable. Love where you live. So many of us have chaotic closets that are crammed full of clothing items and yet somehow we still have nothing to wear. Well, upgrading to high quality and affordable pieces from Quince when you need them is a game changer. They offer organic cotton sweaters and washable silk tops. My 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters are my go-to. Not only are they affordable, but the quality is top-notch 
They wear better than the cashmere sweaters that are double their price. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash sustainable podcast for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sustainable podcast to get free shipping and 365 day returns. One more time, quince.com slash sustainable podcast. And we're back. Today, I am speaking with Liz Frugalwoods. She is the voice behind frugalwoods.com, a blog about financial independence and simple living. She's also the author of a book called Meet the Frugalwoods, Achieving Financial Independence Through Simple Living. Liz, we need to talk about your daughters. I know they're similar ages to mine. And My daughters are young and don't know any better, so when a bag of hand-me-downs comes into the home, into our home, they think it's Christmas. They are so excited to get all these new clothes. Are your children the same? Yes. I let them dress themselves every day. It's completely within their purview, so they wear pants with holes, whatever. I just, I try to have them be weather appropriate because, like, it's very cold here. Mixed results on that. Um, you know, but my goal, I, again, I'm trying to have sort of like this overarching view. And what I feel is that if I reduce the focus on their appearances, we can hopefully reduce the obsession with how we look, how our bodies should look. So I tell them you dress for comfort, for your activity, you wear whatever you want to wear. So sometimes they wear like ball gowns to school and that's fine. I really don't care. Sometimes they wear ripped pants to church. Fine. That's what you're comfortable in. I'm not going to, you know, choose your battles. And I feel like removing that focus hopefully helps them to not be as body and image conscious. And it also sort of disempowers any battles that we could be having over clothing. Like they're not going to get a rise out of me. I'm not going to fight with them. I'm like, you need to cover your body, wear whatever you want. So it sort of eliminates that step in the process We are doing early financial literacy education, particularly with our seven-year-old. So they do chores, they earn money, they have to track how much they've earned, how they've earned it, and then what they spend it on. And this has been very illuminating for them to see like, oh, if I buy this book new, it's going to cost me a lot more than if I get it from the library. So we have those same conversations about clothing. Yes, you could buy new pants but it would be $10. And that's kind of all the money you have, or you could go with these used clothes that are free. And so it's, I'm trying to bring them into the thought process of understanding why we do this. This is going to change and evolve as they grow older. But again, I'm trying to incorporate their desires as much as possible. I'd love to circle back to what you were saying with regard to hopefully if you present your children with a variety of secondhand clothing options and they get to choose what they want to wear, you're hoping that doing so will teach them to focus less on the outward facade. I would agree that in our culture, we tend to place an oversized emphasis on the exterior at the expense of the interior I'm wondering, though, how is this going to change as your children and my children get older? And I know that's hard to predict the future, so I'll 
restate my question and say, how did your mother pivot when you got older and you perhaps wanted a certain brand of jeans or a certain sweatshirt that all your friends were having? What did that look like in your home growing up? I think it's a question of, again, being brought into the process. So understanding the process of how the used clothes are procured, understanding all the reasons for doing used, understanding what money is and how far money will go. We do sort of such a poor job of like teaching our children about what money is and the value of money. And then also not being rigid right? So I'm not saying, oh, I will never buy them anything new because I do occasionally buy them new things. My older daughter really wanted a jean jacket in a bigger size, could not find one used. So I bought her a jean jacket for her birthday. It's not a question of being like a hard liner all the time. I really see it as my guiding principle is frugality, right? Deviations from that are completely fine. But again, sort of bringing them into my line of thinking having this frugality, environmentalism, minimalism as sort of a value from which we operate. And then planning ahead. Planning ahead is like 90% of frugality. I do believe that when it comes to parenting, it's less about, you know, teaching something once and then the child gets it and is on board. I think it's more about quietly living your values every single day. And sure, there will be blips in the road. The child becoming a teenager will certainly rebel, revolt, disagree. That's all normal and part of becoming an independent human being. However, I do believe that, yeah, it's just more about quietly living your values. Maybe they'll stick. Maybe they won't. And I hear you saying that that's essentially what you're doing. Frugality is your guiding principle. It permeates everything or almost everything, I would assume, that you do in your home. Your kids not only see that and observe it, but they likely feel it as well. You mentioned that you are a proponent of financial literacy education for your children and teaching children the value of money because that's not taught. I would so agree with that. Just the other day, my daughters had a book fair at school. They each got 20 bucks. One, my younger daughter came home with all cruddy plastic junk toys, not a single book. And my other daughter, she didn't seem to understand that when the $20 was up, when gone, there wasn't more. And so that was a real come to Jesus moment for me. Like they do not understand that this $20 did not grow on trees. (laughs) They did not understand that this $20 is used in a part of a transaction, a financial transaction to get something. What do you say to parents like me who are just completely failing at the financial literacy education portion of parenting? (laughs) Not failing at all. None of us really have much of a model for this. So I'm making it up as I go. I'm so glad you brought up the book fair because that actually launched our like financial literacy education attempts with our daughter last year when she was in kindergarten and she brought home the book fair flyer. And I was like, oh, great. Another opportunity for consumerism. But then my husband said, wait, 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 wait. She has her own money. 
And so the way that book fairs work in our house is that you can buy whatever you want, but it has to be with your own money. So they do, our kids do chores. I am constantly coming up with new chores for them and I pay them. They have to keep track of their own money. And then they are allowed to essentially buy whatever they want with that money. And so the book fair is the easiest thing. And my daughter now in first grade, she completely gets it, does not ask us for money, does not ask us to buy her anything. And she pours over that book fair thing for days and she like circles it and makes lists. And so she most recently made her purchase. She did not buy a book. (laughs) She bought like, it was like a, it's a necklace, a sleep mask, like a diary. I was like, what even is this? But it was $7. It's what she wanted. She was like, I have $14.50. If I buy this, that will be half of my net worth going towards the sloth slumber kit. But I am okay with that trade-off. And I was like, oh my God, you're hilarious. But the point is, I am, again, bringing them into the process. She is completely enfranchised. I don't care what she buys from the book fair, whatever. You know, she's bought some like, not what I would pick out from these book fairs. But it's her money. It's gone when it's gone. So I I think for us, it's like trying to sort of turn it around and put the onus back on them for stuff like that. That's a nice to have, but not a need to have. You know, I'm not making my seven-year-old like buy her own food at the grocery store. But I do think, you know, any of these opportunities where I'm telling them, you have your money. And my four-year-old gets it too. Like we went to the county fair in the fall. My four-year-old had her coin purse. She knew exactly what she wanted to buy. She wanted the blow up unicorn thing. And it was like 12 bucks and she had it. And she sat there and counted out the money and took this unicorn home. And I was like, okay, she's getting it again. Not what I would have spent my money on, but she very much understood what the money could do for her. But I I am, you know, really trying right now to enfranchise them really to have ownership and skin in the game whether it's the book fair or college. Well, yeah, it must work because they're learning in the real world, right? Like there's lessons that can be learned and perhaps fall short when a parent or, you know, a lecturer is indeed lecturing, right? But uh, they had to work for their money. And then when they purchase something, they have to weigh whether the amount of work that they did to earn the money is worth the thing that they're contemplating spending the money on. So that's real world wisdom that they're attaining right there. Tell me about chores because my children do not do chores and I'm thinking they should. When did you start the chore aspect of earning money with them? What do their chores look like? Tell me all of that. This all kicked off with the stupid book fair thing. Again, this was like a year ago in kindergarten. And it was like on the fly because she was like, I want you to buy me this. And my husband and I were like, absolutely not. You know, she said, well, how can I get the money for it? And so she kind of, she had that desire. She like desperately wanted the unicorn play pack, whatever it was. And so that sort of got us thinking. We have always like from the time that they could walk, had our kids do chores around the house, like helping out, you know, baby, carry the socks over to the drawer. Like we've always had them engaged in setting the table. And, you know, so they have a set of chores that they do that we do not pay them for, that we're very clear that these are the chores you do because you are a member of the family. So for my seven-year-old, she lets the chickens out every morning. She collects the eggs. She has to close up the coop. She does not get paid for that. My four-year-old has to make her bed. 
mixed results, but she does not get paid for that. Um, my seven-year-old has to put away her laundry anytime it's clean, does not get paid for that. Um, you know, they have to clean up after themselves, help load the dishwasher, stuff like that. That again, I think it's really important that they understand like, this is just your minimum viable for being part of this family kid. Then they can choose to do extra chores, which I will pay them for. I have had to like think really hard because a four-year-old who is like very small for her age, there's not a whole lot she can do. Her best chore is collecting the trash cans from around the house and putting them into the kitchen trash. She is very good at that. She also sorts the laundry. So I dump the laundry in a pile and she'll put mama's clothes here, her sister's clothes here. Great. She folds towels. They look terrible when she's done, but she gets it. You know, so for the four-year-old, it's really like enfranchising her to feel confident that I can participate. And then my seven-year-old is like, she is fantastic. She reorganized the entire kitchen for us. I paid her 10 bucks for that because she took everything out of the drawers and like completely reorganized. I mean, she spent hours on it. And that was really me finding something that she already enjoys doing. She likes to organize and she likes to take stuff apart. Um, she also, uh, kept, she put away my laundry. So if she puts away my laundry, I'll pay her. If she puts away her sister's laundry, I'll pay her. Uh, trash, taking the trash out, taking the compost out. But I also, I don't pay them very much for each chore. Um, you know, it's 50 cents. It's a dollar. Like I said, $10 was reorganizing the whole kitchen because I, I don't, I don't think they need to have out of control spending power. Um, and I want to make it sustainable. I had a friend who was giving her daughter a dollar for every pair of socks she matched up in the laundry. That did not work out. She was like out of money. So I try to keep it sustainable so that they can do a lot of chores. And I find that when they want to buy something, they're very motivated to do chores. So I'm going to give my daughter's chores. You've just reinvigorated me. Like, why haven't I done this yet? I love the umbrella theme to our conversation, which is that resources are finite, whether it's planetary resources, whether it's financial resources, resources have a limit. And if we're not explicitly showing and teaching our kids this through chores, through embracing secondhand, they might grow up to not understand that resources are indeed finite. So I have one more clarifying question for you about chores. <laughs> and it's because I fear that enacting a chore um, regimen, I don't think regimen's the right word, but enacting chores in my children's life is going to make my life harder. I feel like I'm going to be nagging them. I feel like it's just going to be extra verbal back and forth that I really don't know if I have the energy for. So how do you how does that work in your home so that the chores are a teachable moment, but they're also not more work, more stress, more hassle for you? Part of it is trial and error. So like I said, the cleaning the bathroom thing, like everybody was super excited. And then it was like a huge mess. And I was like, okay, out, this is not going to work, right? That was an example of a bad chore. A great chore though, collecting the trash for my four-year-old, she, like, if you try to help her, she's like, no, 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 no. Cause she knows how to do it. She's total, she's better at it than her sister. Honestly, it's just like, that is her chore. So she feels, she takes great responsibility. She's like, this is my job. I do the trash. Um, 
for their daily chores that they just have to do every day that I don't pay them for, that is just part of life. When I have chores that my older daughter needs to do, but isn't, again, this is for if they're not being paid for it, she cannot watch TV or do the fun thing until she completes the chores. So occasionally she is up in her bedroom putting away her laundry while her sister starts the evening TV show. And that's a hard lesson. And it's like, those are those learning opportunities. And she's like, well, can I do it after TV? No. You know, and this is just being firm as a parent, setting the expectations. Like I told you two hours ago, you needed to do this. I'm sorry that you're going to miss the beginning of Nature Cat because you're still putting away your laundry. For the chores that I pay them for, if I have to nag or remind, they don't get paid. They figure that out real quick. If you're getting paid for something, you're my employee and I expect you to do a good job. And so if they don't complete the work or they whine about it, they don't get paid. If they need help, I, I will help them. Um, but it's kind of that, that two-tiered system of you know the stuff that you're expected to do that you don't get paid for, you just have to do it as part of, of the morning. And you know I have a little chart for them of what they need to do every morning. They can check it off. Yes. It makes me think of some viral photo I saw online, which was essentially a board with a chore written by a parent on a, on a let's say, an index card, empty the trash bins or um, empty the dishwasher or, I don't know, think about something else, <laughs> make your bed. And then behind the card was money. So 50 cents in a baggie or a dollar in a baggie. And so the kids get to choose the chores they want to do. And if they do it, they receive the uh, payment, I guess, for lack of a better word for doing it successfully. And I think that's what I'm going to do in my house because yes, yeah, you you on board. You think that's good? This is what I want to do. The issue is that my four-year-old can't read and also like would a hundred percent just steal the money at this point. Like I've, you know, so, but my idea, what I really want to do is have it. And I'm just going to list the dollar amount, not actually put the money there, but list like, this is a $1 chore. This is a $10 chore, you know? And then I, my idea is like, they'll take it off almost like how they do in like computer coding. You like take off, like, this is the job I'm doing. They do it. And then they like deposit it, like cash it in with me. I totally want to do this when, when the little one can read. Cause otherwise a seven-year-old is just going to like lord it over her that she can't read. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe if you're a good um, artiste, you can draw a little picture. I am not. <laughs> I have tried and they're like, mom, what is, I'm like, I can't draw. I don't know. I can't do this. <laughs> so I just want to, before we say goodbye, Liz, I want to bring the conversation back around to where we started. We started with secondhand clothes, kids clothes. You did allude to the fact that if your kids have to pay for their wants, not their needs, but their wants with the money that they've earned, they've started, especially your older one, has started to realize that they can get a lot more bang for their hard-earned buck by purchasing secondhand. And so that brings me to the question that I really want to get your insight on, which is how can we normalize secondhand? I mean, in our homes, we can do you know, all the things we've talked about today, but I don't feel as though as a culture, secondhand is embraced, especially when, you know, you can go to Target, you need, your child needs leggings and you can go to Target and get $6 leggings. Inexpensive goods are indeed so inexpensive that 
for a lot of people listening, I would assume they're saying to themselves, well, why bother? I can get $6 pants at Target. $6 pants, you know, (laughs) is better. $6 new pants is better than 50 cent used pants that I have to spend a lot of time searching for. So do you have any final big picture thoughts on normalizing secondhand stuff, not just for our wallets, but also for the planet? Because again, resources are indeed finite. Yes. And you you hit the nail on the head. It's really thinking about the environmental aspect, right? Because I think there's sometimes this, this confusion where I don't shop secondhand because I can't afford new. I can afford new. I choose secondhand because fast fashion is terrible for workers, terrible for working conditions, horrible for the climate. Like I don't like what it says about sort of our materialistic culture. So for me, it really goes so far beyond the money saved. For me, it's a no brainer because I can get the same thing for less. And anytime I can do that, I'm doing it because then I can use that money on something that I can't get for less, right? I can use that on a museum membership, on a vacation with the kids, on going skiing, right? So it's, for me, it's so much more important to save the money on the stuff that just does not matter to me and then put that money towards things that really do matter. And that's sort of the emphasis that I try to teach my kids about too, is that it's like, you can you can afford whatever you want, but you can't afford everything. And so how do you wanna use those resources wisely. And so, you know, if my girls, if they were to say something like, why don't we get brand new clothes? I'd say, well, you know, let's talk about that instead of me just saying, no, don't ask that. You know, okay, let me talk you through my thought process. I'm not going to change my approach, but I'm very happy to answer your questions, explain it to you. And then I'm fine with having the firm line of this is what our family does. And, And it's just kind of creating those boundaries and helping them understand that, as a kid, you have some say, you don't have every say, and helping them to feel secure within the knowledge that like their parents are going to take care of them. Get it, giving them a bit of freedom, giving them a bit of rope, but not letting them hang themselves or hurt themselves with the bit of rope you've given them. I think that's what you're saying there. And I love it. I know there's like a much better saying than that. <laughs> but I don't know what it is off the top of my head. But give them a little, don't give them unfettered amounts. Thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. I've really genuinely enjoyed talking to you. We talked for 20 minutes longer than I thought we would. So that's a testament to how much I like you. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Listeners, that's a wrap. Show notes are at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 332. This is your last and final chance to email me if you want in on the electric school bus 2023 New Year's resolution we're doing here on the show. I've got a good dozen of you so far. So if you listen to episode 330 with Hal Harvey and Justin Gillis, we talked about school buses. If you missed it, take a listen. And then if you want to join us, shoot me a quick email, emails in the show notes, and just say, I'm in for school buses, and I'll put you on our mailing list. I will see you on Thursday. See you then. Take care. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.